right. Here we are again. Yes. Uh, this is uh, Chris Call with uh, the Prop Masters Guild for Prop Talk. Um, but today we have uh, with us Brad Elliott and uh, also Mikey Trudell is with us as well. I just want to start off by uh, saying, because last time I forgot, um, all you listeners out there, Mikey also has a podcast called Failing Hollywood. So please check that out as well. Um, he records that out of the same studio that we are in today. So uh, without further ado, you know, we now. We're, we're doing kind of a series um, prior to and including the Oscars. So we want to hit up some of uh, the Oscar-nominated uh, films that uh, our prop people have been working on. And um, Brad here has been is the uh, property master on Avatar. And we're going to get into that because there's a lot there. But uh, I want to go back a little bit, Brad, um, first, in the beginning of your career. Um, now... My question to you is, were you um, a puppet, um, a puppeteer uh, early in your career? Is that how you started? How did you get started with the, I mean, you did Team America before that even, so. I like the question, were you a puppet? Yeah. Were, I, were you a puppet? <laughs> were you are an you, actual puppet? I, I so, are you one now? <laughs> I feel more like I'm a puppet now than before, really. Aren't we all? I, I did. I always loved puppeteering. I remember there was, gosh, I think I chopped up like a table pad and made a um, tortoise in the hair puppet show when I was like 10 and nice. got to go perform it to like the first graders at the school I was in or something. but So that was the start of it? That You know, I'd always been very interested in puppetry and always just felt, um, like most, a lot of people, a real connection to the Muppets. I mean, the, to, to yeah. the fact that these inanimate pieces of fur and fleece and feathers and foam, I guess everything that starts yeah. with that, yeah. <laughs> uh, can be animated by brilliant puppeteers and bring you to real emotional like reaction right. is so impressive. And I, you know, I wasn't thinking of it in those terms as a kid, but when I started thinking like, oh, maybe I want to start, you know, working in the film industry or something, that was one of the, my goals early on. I wanted to, you know, work for the Muppets and I wanted to work on Star Wars and work on yeah, Raiders right. of the Lost Ark and all the things that just inspired me as a kid. Are Man, you, you're checking some boxes. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> Are you from this area? Are you from L.A.? or No, I'm originally from Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Go nice. Badgers. Um, <laughs> nice. And was really just passing through Los Angeles. I had taken some time to um, uh, work at a, a summer camp for kids with HIV and, and AIDS back in, this is the mid-90s. Wow. How old were you? I was 25. Um, so I, you weren't working in the industry at all at this age? No, we actually just, I was well, I was working at a, a TV station in Madison for mm -hmm. three years. I was, the, I was the Fox Kids Club host, so I was like a VJ for cartoons in the morning. And oh, really? The afternoons. Yeah, like if you wanted to stupid obnoxious guy to introduce your cartoons i was the one so that's where i started um after that i decided to leave and join uh, a friend of mine who had started this camp and we ended up out in uh, los angeles because there was a group of producers out here who had money yeah and mm -hmm. they wanted to do this type of a camp they heard of us so they rented a space and they brought us out for a few weeks and when that was over i had gotten a letter that my mom had clipped out of a milwaukee newspaper that said that they were starting a new muppet show and I was like, well, I'm in town. I guess I'll just go get a job on that. And um, <laughs> like that's just certain. like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because I was <laughs> too stupid to know that that's not how it works. <laughs> so I, I found the number for Jim Henson Productions and I called him up and got an interview. And a 
couple of months later, I was a PA in the production office. Brilliant. Um, and in between photocopying and running, you know, tapes to the post house and getting producers' cars washed and coffee and things like that. Right. All the good stuff that everybody yes. wants to join the film industry for. <laughs> um, I had spent every spare moment in the Muppet Workshop because that was such a cool place. They were making not only the puppets, um, but they were making the the costuming for the puppets. Right. And they were making all the props for the puppets. And I was just like, I've always been a maker. Right. Uh, and I was really interested in what they were doing because it was just the coolest place there was. And uh, so I would hang out. And if I could help sweep up a little bit i did and then i spray painted something and then i drilled a hole and then i tapped a hole with threads and about three months into that the show went on hiatus and uh fred buckles who i owe pretty much my whole career to uh decided that uh he was going to um to pull out a chair at a workbench and uh promote me from production assistant to uh a prop manufacturer in the muppet workshop Really? And they weren't, so they were actually making, though, all the Muppets that we know and love, like, by, like, they were making Kermits and Miss Piggies and stuff like that, like, from the get-go? Yeah, I mean, most of those puppets, honestly, were already made. Yeah, I know. But there were adaptations and adjustments, and then there were always new characters that the writers were coming up with, and those had to be built and made, and... Also, a ton of things to maintain. Like I remember one of my early jobs, they'd, uh, they'd I think they had a um, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew had a shrink ray and shrunk Beaker's head down. Oh, cool! Yeah. <laughs> and so the mechanical portions right. of those puppets, even though the puppet builders are very, very capable at doing all of this stuff, um, just for the sake of time, fell to the sort of the prop side of that. So I, I, I remember, I think it was a, a like a shop vac hose. Or something like that that I carved into and made a little mechanism so you could pull mm-hmm. a little string and get the little beaker mouth flapping open. <laughs> and then I would turn that over to the puppet makers and they would cover it in fleece and put the eyes on and all the rest of that. Oh, that's so cool. How long did you work there or doing the Muppets stuff pretty much? I have In the shop anyway. In, in that particular shop, it was just the one season. Um, and then just sort of on and off for the past 20 seven years something like that whenever they um, come up with a project um i'm sometimes uh one of the phone calls but we've done movies in north carolina and in vancouver um i did not go to london to do the last um movie they did there but there's been tv projects and uh it's just the it's a it's a great organization it's a wonderful group of people right so so you were always doing props for them you were you ever uh puppeteering um, I have puppeteered for them um, sort of like when it was, oh, darn it, we're out of puppeteers. <laughs> <laughs> we need this penguin in the background. So who's in the workshop right now? Brad, come here, come here, come here. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. Um, and then occasionally when uh, we would do some more complicated rigs like some marionette work or work with the RCs where the puppeteers were you know, stepped back a bunch or rigs that we had yeah. done. Occasionally, the some of the puppeteers would just be like, um, that looks, can you do that? And so we would jump in and right. occasionally. So, but uh, only once maybe credited uh, as a as a proper puppeteer, I but see. every once in a while, you know. When you came out of the shop, did you, is, is, was prop mastering like at the top of your list at that point now that you kind of almost have an idea of what it is? No, I wanted to be a prop builder. I wanted to go to those cool shops like, you know, um, all the funky special effects shops yeah, that were right, doing models and right. all those places. And uh, they weren't 
they weren't interested. Um, the job that came <laughs> across my desk quickly was uh, actually at a prop house uh, that you both I'm sure know about with uh, Pam and Jim, History for Hire. So, right. Oh, yeah. um, they have a tremendous inventory of antique, older props, mm-hmm. um, and anybody that has anything that's antique or older knows that it needs maintenance. Yes. And so I was in the back... Um, with Gary and and some of the other folks, and I was just doing a lot of repair work. And then once they understood that I knew how to make a mold, we were starting to make um, some copies of of things that were really rare. So I think they still have the set of microphones. This is like the thing I did right before I I left. The set of microphones that FDR um, stood um, in front of or behind to to ask Congress to declare war on Japan. Wow! Um, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the, the originals. The well, we, it's not the originals, but it is the copy that <laughs> I, I think yes. it was made for Winchell. And it's okay. like if you need to rent that set, that's yeah. one I made. Uh, <laughs> um, I want to back up a little yeah. bit though, because again, Team America, World Police, that was pretty early on for you, right? That was early on. That was um, I'd been prop mastering already. I'd left the shops because I realized that um, prop building is uh, exposing yourself to a lot of toxins, and right. I wanted to kind of step away from that. And yeah. when doors opened to prop master, I was like, "Yep, let's go do that." Uh, Team America World Police came up because um, a producer who was attached to the project early, uh, Chris Plord, um, knew me from Muppets and knew I was a prop master and knew that I had. A, a very strong fundamentals on building props and designing props for puppets. Yeah. Um, which are just, if you don't need to do a puppet show, don't, if you can do it any <laughs> other way, <laughs> because that's, they don't do anything for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> that's so true. That's funny. But I have to share this with you because, uh, before I came to LA, I was in Pittsburgh for seven years. And anybody who worked in the film industry in Pittsburgh at one time or another most likely did a stint with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And so I got to do a season of no Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's <laughs> awesome. And uh, one of the episodes we did was uh, about recycling. So I had, and so the land of make believe. Um, they weren't picking up any of the garbage. It was stacking up everywhere. So we, <laughs> we got to make all this little mini garbage, and they had to do these little bundles of newspapers and everything. And it was fantastic. Oh, yeah, scale is a really important part of it, and getting the scale right with puppets is really difficult. Yes. Like, you know, you're talking about uh, Team America. I, I put a little shop together because I knew that with with Trey and Matt, they were going to be really nimble. They were going to make changes. Um, uh, Trey Parker, Matt Stone, and yeah. Um, so we had our own shop because I thought it was going to be economical. We were going to save money as opposed to going out to the to the vendors in town. And we knew that we'd be able to react faster than calling up, you know, SAT and saying, hey, I need this in six hours. Right. Uh, you're not going to probably get that done. Maybe. I don't know. But um, odds are better if you've got your own crew and you can just sort of ring a bell and everybody stops what they're doing. So we had started our own little shop for that. And that's that's where... Um, How long have you been prop mastering before that movie at this point oh my goodness i think my first prop master job was probably in 97 mr show Hmm. Uh, oh okay season three yeah the bob 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 odenkirk yeah all right right um so it wasn't too too long after that maybe a few years so it was it was my first film ever certainly so but did you start mastering immediately or were you assisting so um i i was hired out of a a prop house as somebody who could build for a show that needed building i see and they hired me as an assistant prop master under ken russell right um, talented guy 
And um, the next season, uh, Ken got um, a different or better job offer and left the show. And sort of the power vacuum uh, pulled me up. I co-prop mastered that season with uh, Charlie Grimm, who's no longer in the industry. But um, I was sort of in charge of all the manufacturing, and he was in charge of the rentals and the paperwork. So fresh out of the gate, you're just working pretty much right away jobs where you're bringing prop shop into your crew immediately which I found is one of the hardest things for me to convince a producer <laughs> as a starting prop master right. anyways and go in. Yeah, like how, how are we going to make this efficient? I think because with Team America specifically, specifically, yeah, Chris Plord knew that there was a Muppet workshop and that right. that was a model that he was very comfortable and familiar with. So when I said, listen, we can do all this out at the shops, but then you're paying you know, what was right. then 90 to $100 an hour for somebody to sit at a bench at a company because they have all the overhead and they've got to pay sure. rent and keep the lights on and insurance. I said, if we hire these people just at their union rate, it's going to be, I, you know, you're already renting this building. So just give me a corner of it. Yeah, right. just pay for materials. We can their tool pay. up pretty quickly and cheaply. Yeah. And so it made sense to do it on that show for both the, the being nimble, for being able to react to things that come last minute, and there were plenty. And also just to stretch the dollars. Yeah. Makes hmm. sense. <laughs> so did you were were you always as a kid um, interested in tinkering with stuff? I mean, was your dad what did he or was he uh, my, my dad was a maker for yeah. sure. I okay. mean not not as his profession was economics professor, but he was a builder. And my grandfather on his side uh, was a maker as well. And mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a genetic thing or if it's just this is what was modeled for me as right. a kid. But yeah, I always made stuff all the time. And, you know, I remember being like nine or 10 years old and looking at the hairdryer in our bathroom and realizing that it looked like there was like lint or something on the air intake. And I was like, right. oh, well, that's not helping at all. I'll fix that. So nice. I took it apart. <clears throat> I've got it apart on the, on the kitchen table. And then my mom comes into the room and we didn't have extra money for extra hair dryers. She was a little disappointed that this 10-year-old's got this hair dryer all taken apart. <laughs> but it was just, it came naturally to me. Yes. And I did get the hair dryer back together. And it, I and think she's still using it today. Wow. Very nice. I that. don't know. I just made that part up. <laughs> I love it. Though. Let's just run with it. <laughs> okay. That's fantastic. Well, that, I mean, that stands to reason. I mean, I think that that's something that, like, a lot of property masters have in common. It's just that that, that inclination towards working with your hands so and the curiosity and the curiosity <laughs> yeah right? it seems like part and parcel i'm still a builder now just for me <clears throat> right you know, i make stuff that is or you know what's what's your go-to like what do you usually make is uh, it like i've been building lately, furniture or? no i've lately i've been into um uh, found object items that are looking a little bit like science fictiony but i start with materials that are all around 100 years old oh oh so there's an interesting tension That's extremely tension there specific. It is. It's kind of my, sort of my new jam. Yeah. I'm into that. And, and very volatile, right? I mean, the, when I did Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I know that like going back and trying to find old stuff, it's like, oh, great, you find this old thing, but then it's like, it doesn't work. Or like a lot of the things I would get would be new in the box that I would put that, type that in, look, you know, saying, I'm going to find it new because it's out there. And then you get it and you get it back and it's like, oh, all the rubber pieces have deteriorated, even right. though it's never yeah. been used. And you still have to rebuild it. Yeah. Or I would imagine that there's some stuff that isn't going to work um, and as reliably as you would have needed for, 100%. for camera work. Right. Well, like all the tape 
Yeah, those specifically those, those real say, real yeah. tape decks. I think I had like eight of those things because they just kept failing, and some yeah. of them work for certain things, and then others not. And then you know we live in abject fear that it's just going to stop working when you're rolling. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's that wonderful moment as a prop master when you you know you're on the porch and you have a lemonade and you're tipped back in your chair and it's just about to fall and you catch yourself. <laughs> That's that moment we just live in all the time. <laughs> that's right. And that's what keeps you, gets you up in the morning. Yeah. Um, so at some point when all, in all of your um, um, puppeteering and prop making uh, shows, things started transitioning to more digital or a more uh, visual effect. So where, how did that come about for you? My first real experience with, the heavy visual effects um, film would have been uh, Tintin, the Steven right. Spielberg, Peter Jackson. Yeah, I was curious about that because it's it's an animated only. film, right? It's yes, it's animated, but it uses uh, performance capture technology. Okay, um, and so for you know just to, uh, performance capture in in twenty seconds or less is you have um, actors who uh, somebody wants to reproduce their performance as opposed to giving an animator a model and saying, please become the actor. So if you want the actor to become the actor as opposed to an animator to become the actor. And this is my my younger brother's an animator at Pixar and they are brilliant people and they do things incredibly well. There's absolutely a place for that. But I also understand where a director might want to get, if they have Daniel Craig in the studio, they want to see Daniel Craig's walk across the floor right. and not somebody who is imagining that walk across the floor. So you marker up your um, your actor, whether it's... Ping pong ball suit, right? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> whether it's active markers or passive markers or optical markers or magnetometer or... Uh, then there's a, there's a whole... We can go down that. Um, <laughs> I already am over 20 seconds on this. So, But, but it good. gives a fidelity to the performance and a difference to the performance that's um, that's real to the actor on the day. And it's also something you can direct in real right. time. As opposed to directing animation, the process between when you imagine the storyboard and when you see the first... Uh, the first bit of it, you may say, oh, well, you know what? I, I need to pace that up a little bit. Or let's slow that walk down there. Or let's come wider around the table. That's all stuff you can do in real time. And I think that was that's a large uh, benefit for uh, performance capture. But that was one of the first times embracing this really new technology and, and trying to understand that the props involved for that right. need to inform motion. So uh, if... Captain Haddock was going to have a bottle of booze. It has to have the right shape, first of all. Right. It's probably wireframe, so it doesn't occlude the cameras so that they can see through the bottle to the finger markers. I see. It needs a stopper because you're going to pull that off and you don't want to pantomime it. And then I, we actually hung um, a little lead weight at the bottom because when you move a bottle that has liquid in it, there's momentum to the liquid, which sloshes ah, a little bit, and it right. will actually move your hand just a tiny bit. Right. It's the same, and you guys have, yes. you know, do you put do <laughs> you put do you put anything in the coffee cup for the actor right. yes. or not? Exactly. You always put something exactly. in the coffee cup because you hold it differently if there's liquid exactly. in it. Exactly. So that's important to consider and to simulate. Interesting. When we get all the way to Avatar, and we're working with James Cameron, um, he wanted to use blank firing machine guns in the capture volume. Wow. Holy crap. Because, first of all, it can be done safely, as we all know. Of course. And 
and it informs your actors. Not only does this thing now need to be reloaded very specifically when the magazine runs out, but it's loud. You right. have to really control where that barrel's going. It makes you attend to the weapon in your hand much differently than uh, what happened on the, the first Avatar, which I was not a part of. That was mm-hmm. Andy Siegel's work. Um, right. Uh, and it was just, not to say better or worse, but they had, uh, from what I collected from their inventory, um, a, a decent number of just sort of plywood cutout guns sure. with weights in them. Right. So it had the right shape. It kept the right. hands in the right so place. Did it they, had weight. Did they not do uh, blank firing guns on the first one then? Not to my knowledge. Okay. Not for capture. Per- perhaps for live action stuff. Right. I'm, sure. That's a different story. But so for capture, we were actually working with... with you know, armorers and machine guns in the volume because it informed the performance. When you are getting shot at and you're trying to hide behind a tree, not only did we have the noise just for effect for these actors going off in the volume, but sometimes we would also um, take out Nerf guns mm-hmm. with big magazines of like 50 right. or 60 Nerf darts and we would shoot at them wow, so that nice. they had to, if they were going to peek Direct. out around a tree, there was going to, some was going to come at them. They couldn't keep their head out that long or they'd get hit. 100%. And that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, and I'm sure as an actor, they really appreciate that involvement for you. Because I think of that, like when I watch Jurassic Park, and they have to like react to these dinosaurs that aren't there. Right. So I think anything that you do to help them feel like they're in the moment in reality would be helpful for them. I mean, especially in, in a volume, which is largely gray. And the terrain right. yeah. is, you know, sort of plywood geometry. There's not a lot of reality that, that unless unless we we bake it in there isn't a lot that's already there as we kept going we realized the value for the actors was was great in having this stuff so some of the sets that we were shooting in for capture became fully dressed uh because when you consider a scene where you've got you know there are actors that will will pick something up and start working with it organically from the set mm. and if the set isn't there or the set isn't dressed, they don't get to make that choice. And, you know, I've always considered myself somebody that puts colors of paint on a palette and then you hand that palette to a director and it's their job to use that, whatever's there, to tell their story. And, you know, maybe you were very excited about the shade of red you put on the palette that day. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been excited about one of the colors we put on the, well, you know metaphorically of course um and if they don't use it you know early on it hurt a little bit yeah 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 definitely <laughs> but it now always I hurts understand. a little bit. yeah we all know that <laughs> now i know though that that's not what we do we're there to service the storytellers definitely and we're there to give them all the options including the actors so if right. there is a fully dressed capture volume the actors get choices um whether they want to interact with it or not it's there right so Walk me through that process of like when you're breaking down a script and meeting with the director and everything. I mean, how is that different with a stop motion as opposed to like a practical props? Uh, capture, not stop or motion. Capture. But yeah, sorry. Um, yeah. It's it's really kind of the same process. Um, when you're designing for the virtual, um, you still need to know how big it is. You need to know the shape. You need to know the size. Now, sometimes you can back into that. A director can say, hey, you know what we need here is something about this big, and it's going to be this, and he's going to use it as a club, and so it needs to be this. And we can we can go to our, our little kit of dowels and wire and tape and foam, and we can very quickly build that prop, and then through some 
little tricks of technology that we advanced a tiny bit um, on the Avatar sequels. You can actually uh, get that markered up so the motion of that thing is tracked. And then later on, you can design it. You can back into the form factor um, when you're designing for virtual. Uh, oftentimes, we'll actually build a part of the prop. You don't need the whole thing, but maybe some material sampling to know right. the color of the wood and the texture and the finish, if it is wood. Um, so when you turn over a design for the virtual, oftentimes you've got, you know, a nice image of it, mm -hmm. um, a, you know, a painting design sure. like we would hand to any director. But also then we'll call out materials. We'll give samples on the materials so that as the prop gets built digitally, uh, a low-res version in the lab at first just so we have a working file, and then the finished version, uh, in this case at, at Weta, Weta in mm -hmm. New Zealand, um, then they've got really strong guidance and you've worked it through with the director of like, well, no, that's not that blonde wood. We wanted a darker wood. I see. And we've worked that out already so that they're not giving our, you know, in this case, James Cameron, something that he's not super interested in. Right. And he may change his mind later, but we at least want to know what the first choice was. Right. And are you getting notes all the time from post tweaking um, not really. By the time I left the project, um, the digital turnover was sort of the last thing we did, which mm -hmm. was to clean up all of those files to make sure that everything was designed, that right. had a proxy, that there wasn't anything left un left undone, and that we had either material sampling done or like where you physically build a piece of it to yeah. scan, or we had material callouts from reference photos and, and, and such. Then it's off to Wetadigi and the post-production uh, world and you know I was probably already two jobs down the road by the time they right. were doing the final renders of some of that stuff. How 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 many props in a movie like Avatar looks like in real life like it does in the movie and something like like the bow and arrows is that how they actually how you built them and how they look or is there some element that's kind of virtual that you need to make to make it easier for them in post um, as opposed to what can actually look like to the actors in real life? Well, like, um, let's take the war boat, for example. Okay. This is Etukan's bow that Natiri gets at the end of Avatar 1, and right. this is the bow of her people, and this is what she's going to protect them with. That design was pretty much done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, as I really dug through the archives, there were some minor variations, but nothing much to change. Um, so that was kind of what it was. Now, on the volume, we built one, but it wasn't a one-to-one... A replica of the war bow. It was um, lighter materials. I think it was made out of rattan, and it had all of the form factors, so you knew where everything was, and you weren't going to occlude anything. You, you weren't going to accidentally look through a shot of of the bow and the string and forget that the little flight vane is there. Um, but we made it lightweight. We made the pull of it really light so that, you know, it doesn't fatigue the actor who's sure. got to use yeah. it over and over again. So in that case, it's it's it wasn't painted even i don't think i think we left it pretty much raw wood uh it had a leather wrap we didn't want to use materials that would take the actor out so i'm not going to use like a tennis racket wrap around the um around the grip um sorry i keep it's okay <laughs> i keep punching the microphone in case anybody's wondering what that is it's not an earthquake it's like a re reverb yeah and then i talk about it so you have something really <laughs> so you get really focused on it yeah, it's exactly. like rewind and listen we're just to putting it. you in the room that's it well it's fascinating to me though that i, I love that part that you you're basically building most everything right yeah so well for that for the for the avatar sequence sure. there was i don't there wasn't much we could rent 
Right. You know, there wasn't <laughs> nothing, much on, no. nothing on Amazon. Right? And then there's design challenges too, because like we're, we're here, we're what, eight, 10 years in the future. Right. right. And we have this, you know, the breather packs. Mm-hmm. So we updated those. Right. There's going to be a new piece of technology, especially right. for a military that keeps reaching and developing. We used um, the old sort of infantry gun from the, from the grunt soldiers, because you know, how long has the AR-15 been around? How right. long has the AK-47 been around? Eight years is not that much time, actually, to change a gun platform. Right. right. The design worked, and it was identifiable as part of the movie, so we used that. The pistol, we completely redesigned, because the pistol from the first movie, it wasn't seen very much, but mm-hmm. when you look at the thing, um, it sort of has a very phaser sort of look. Right. It doesn't have any kind of motion to um like the to, rack and stuff. right to yeah. mimic like in the world of avatar it's a cartridge sort of with an ejection it's it's that yeah. kind of a gun it's not a space laser it's not you know something different it, it's it's very conventional and this thing didn't have those mechanics built in so we took that form factor which is there are some rough triangular shapes we sort of took a little bit of the of the outline of the thing and then came back with a design um that made more sense to fit the world. Right. And then for stuff, uh, for spider stuff, the live action bits, we had to build all of it, you know, for arrows that needed to hit and impact a person. We mm-hmm. built those arrows, oh, whether cool. or not we were going to use them in the volume or not. We had them and, or I'm sorry, on, on the live action stage, we had them. So you know what they would look like. Sure. Yeah. It's, I, I want to back it up to Tintin real quick. Yeah. Since you had never really worked on anything like that going in, like, like how are you feeling when you accept that job, knowing, <laughs> like, after it's been told to you? Because I'm, I'm trying to, like, think. If somebody came to me with, like, a project like Tintin, maybe I'd accept it, but, like, I'd probably be shitting my pants a little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, all of the above. I mean, I, I, I was brought to that project... Um, I, I think uh, Doug Harlocker was the one that recommended me um, to to that production group. So thank you again, Doug. For <laughs> have you worked? Did, had you worked with Doug before? A, a little bit. I uh, I was very fortunate um, to come in and do a few weeks on Indiana Jones Four oh, as cool. just oh. a day player. In fact, I wait was, the Crystal Skull one. The Crystal Skull oh, one. Bummer. No, no, there are, <laughs> there, are, there are moments. There are <laughs> prop wise. I, I think cool. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I was actually uh, wrapping up the closer. I had a week left, right. and um, and I got that call, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I'll go do that." Uh, you know, I can, definitely I can leave a week of wrap just to say that I worked on that for a day, sweeping out a truck. I was overjoyed. Yeah, and I bet. Uh, it worked out that um, that Doug needed a, a little more help for a little longer, so I stayed around for a few weeks, and and it was really really a memorable experience to be able to. You know, I so Indy's Indy had this satchel thing, yeah. Um, and uh, we were we were doing a scene um, on the Universal backlot. I think it was the Ant Hills or something like that. And he was in a he had to be in a fist fight with a guy. And um, the the bag, which is this vintage World War One right. gas mask bag, the leather strap um, was just it was it Tattered. was time to, time to go. <laughs> and the hero prop was on the actor for the stunt sequence. Um, and the the strap ripped. Mm. Now we need a strap. But Doug, because he's a he's a real purist and a, and quite a perfectionist that I, I appreciate, he wanted to put the backup strap on the hero bag. Right. And so I was the guy to do that in the middle of 
a bunch of wood chips um, while the sun's beating down and everybody's waiting. Yes. So <laughs> to make a long story short, I borrowed a bunch of tools. I cut a welded ring uh, apart. I got it all together and I bent the welded ring back together. And I'm just so proud that I have plier marks on that prop now. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> For all of history. <laughs> No one will know. I didn't sign it or anything, but I'll know my plier marks are there. Yeah. That's fantastic. I love that. So building, going into Tintin, then, like, what do you do after you get the job? You just, you're, like, how do you budget something like this? Like, how do you go about this? (laughs) Well, I knew that um, we were going to be doing a lot of manufacturing of capture props, and I had a rough understanding after a very brief conversation with um at that point the supervising art director now a very talented production designer named andrew jones who held my hand through a lot of this oh mm-hmm. good uh he had experience um just previous to this uh as an art director on avatar um and he had done some of the earlier zemeckis capture work uh as well so oh, cool. he he was really my guide and he was a patient uh teacher teacher and i was i really appreciate that um understanding that all you have to get to is form factor weight and transparency um right then you can go solve the problems um there was a lot of design work that was already done that was handed to us because they were kind of working i think a little bit more under the english model where um you know in england the the production designer and or the set decorator will do a lot of the design and manufacture the props and the prop master's job is mostly to maintain those on set, right. keep them repaired and in good working order, get them into the actor's hands and get them locked up and secured at night. Um, so a lot of that design work had already happened and we were uh, building from that to hit the schedule. So the art department support was just fantastic with that and, and helps you kind of get grasps. Work, yeah, design yeah. and all that stuff. And then we would go in and like there were a few times when... Um, uh, Stephen would improvise, and I, you know, there was a moment where he called us over. They cut for lunch, and he says, "When we come back for lunch, I'm going to need uh, a life ring. I'm going to need some kind of big like pry bar, and I'm going to need this, and I'm going to need this." And I was like, "Okay, yeah, we'll get that done for you." <laughs> nope. And I remember walking. <laughs> I was Sorry, like, Stephen. Like, what are you going to say? It's Stephen's building. Right. Right. Exactly. I'm all over it. Right. <laughs> so I'm I'm walking away from that, and one of my assistants is like, "How are you going to get all this done?" And I'm like, "I have no idea. Let's figure it out. We're going to start working on it now. We have probably 45 minutes. <laughs> right. And but for capture." You need to get to shape. Right. You need to get to weight. Right. And even then, you don't even have to marker it up because the important performance is of, you know, the actor and the performer. It's not the prop. If it's a cane and they're holding something and their motion on right. stage right. is the correct motion for the cane, you don't really need to track the cane. You can put that back in later. If you can track the cane, it's better. But, you know, once you start to overload these volumes, the computers only can handle so much before they just say, you know what, guys, we're not doing this. Screw it. I'm going to melt down. Do you have a solid working trailer at this point, though, too? Oh, well, no. (laughs) You don't you you really don't have like a shop in your trailer. Oh, I do now. But not then, then, of course. Right. Tintin, we had a little shop with uh, with really two full time uh, builders just just whacking out all kinds of wireframe stuff and then with the help of the brain bar you bring it in and you marker it up and back then we had a very complicated barcoding system so that we could scan props into the volume and then scan them out of the volume so that the metadata of what was there is available because when you go back to to play this stuff back the, the interesting thing about performance capture is you can 
you can record your scene, and as long as you think you have the blocking pretty well, you can actually shoot cameras on it later. Right. You've recorded the blocking. You've got all the motion in in 360 degrees of your entire volume. You know, if you had a little bobble with the camera when you were lining up all those shots, as long as you know that you can line those shots up later, then you can dismiss all of your actors and then a month later replay all that data mm. and shoot it again. Right. Which is why I think performance capture, um, and they used to call it motion capture, but I'm, I'm on board with calling it performance capture sure. because we're not just trying to capture, you know, sure, we're capturing motion of objects, but the whole point of this, you know, going back to what I was saying about the animators is you're trying to capture performances. Right. That's the key. Yes. And that's what, that's what brings the real emotion to it. When Natiri in Avatar The Way of the Water is screaming because, uh, spoiler, uh, Natayim <laughs> has just been killed. There's a real performance there that is coming from mm. Zoe. Yeah. It's not an right. animator guessing about what being an actor would be like for them. Again, animators have a tremendous amount of skill and ability to do this, and the best ones are actually, they would probably make tremendously good actors. But this is just the process for, you know, in, in this case, sure. this is James Cameron. This is his process. It's probably the well, best process there. <laughs> I am also not a representative of Lightstorm Entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that is an important distinction. You know, we have this saying, we've actually made stickers that were the, for the PMG that says prop property, we build char character. Yeah. Because that is what we do. You know, and like those, all this discussion now about um, um, the GPT and the AIs that are coming out and people say, oh, we're all going to lose our job and it's all going to be done um, digitally now. It's like, I don't, I think that that, the part of bringing people in their, um, <clears throat> their personalities forward, I think that that gets lost if it's all done like on a screen. It's probably cheaper to do it, AI. <laughs> right. <laughs> you lose I'm that sure. creativity for sure. 100%. I mean, have you done any uh, claymation? No, I've never done any stop motion. Or, well, I mean, I played with it myself in right. college. Yeah. Or have, you, have you seen Pinocchio? Yes. The, the Tom Hanks one? No, the, the no. Guillermo del Toro one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's gorgeous. It's unbelievable. Those people, too, are the folks that can do that are their brains work differently, right? Yeah, they're, they, they're way more patient than patient. <laughs> well, but they can also. <laughs> My patience is the one thing I don't think they have yeah. the ability though to slow down time for right. themselves in a way and know what a glance should be and how fast that glance should be. And I, I am always just, right. in, in I'm amazed and in awe of stop motion animators. I agree uh, because it's it's there's real light hitting real objects, which I think brings a look and a quality that's just really hard to render digitally. Um, and sometimes the, I always get lost in the stories and I'm no longer thinking right. about, oh, that's a puppet. Right. You know. Well, as soon as I finished that movie, the first thing I did was go on and find the making of documentary to watch oh, it. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I was like, I, because I, again, I got lost in the story and it was fantastic. And I was like, but somebody did this. You I see mean, those time lapses, how insane just it looks. Insane, you know, a thousand days shoot. I mean, that's amazing. So, um, let me ask you this about uh, something like Avatar. What what kind of crew do you have? What's what's the makeup of your crew? On I was wondering like about that. that. Your full time crew. I think yeah. <laughs> that was on my. Yeah. Well, let's see. In 
in the beginning, um, there was uh, like there always are. There's some budget conversations, of course. and I think the there was an expectation that we were going to be doing things just like they did on Avatar One, which wasn't really what um, James Cameron's process was going to be this time around. Mm-hmm. So it started out with a budget that they offer, you know, they offer you a number saying, well, we think you can get it done for this. And, and I, ho- before you go further, I just want to say the number because all I could think going into this, oh, there's some budgetary expectation. This is the highest budgeted movie of all time. <laughs> yes, but I, I don't think it was greenlit as such. And I can't, okay. uh, this is my guess, yeah. honestly. I'm venturing into, into shaky territory sure. here because I never know. Yeah. You know who knows what the budget of those movies right. was, and those that those numbers will be held very tightly. Totally, um, and I wouldn't even want to speculate. But I, I, my reaction, I won't, I won't put the number out there. But I'll tell you that I didn't even think I could get through capture with right. what they had, uh, with what they had, you know, for me, and much less live action. So um, when we went to New Zealand, the crew was quite big. Um, Melissa Spicer was uh, the New Zealand prop master out there, and she had. A crew of probably four or five assistants full time, uh, along with um, probably two or three builders, and that's just in house builders. Uh, and then we were out to really the three shops um, that we used in New Zealand were Weta Workshop, uh, a shop called Human Dynamo, and a shop called Rubber Band. And they built mm. pretty much all of our stuff. Um, that, that was a much larger crew there. That was just the prep crew. And then on set, we had probably three people um, mm-hmm. full-time. Uh, when we got bigger, we brought uh, day players in or we brought office office prop assistants Do in. you have background days on a show like that? Oh, yeah. They yeah, are. Absolutely. Um, whenever you... Like, you know, there's a... One of our bigger days was... There's a scene um, where they're, the, the ship is sinking and you can right. see them rolling life rafts into the water and pulling strings and inflating life rafts. Like... We had to be prepared for multiple takes of four life raft inflations oh, at a time. Awesome. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Um, you know, we had vans standing by to shuttle these life rafts as soon as they were inflated and taken off the set uh, to the shop that was going to be repacking them and putting the little discs in and reloading them with carbon dioxide. Wow. and. Like it was a machine, and so we had a lot of. You bodies. were rotating them and driving them immediately back to a well, shop to repackage them. And yeah, and it was about an hour and twenty minute rounder. Oh my god, uh, that's fantastic! Uh, and then New Zealand ran out of carbon dioxide. Wow, <laughs> because of you guys? Or? No, they just—it's like the ship didn't show up that day. Yeah, right. and it's an island nation, yes. and you can't always control it. And even though all the legwork was done and the tests. The test runs were done, and we did everything we could to get ourselves as prepared as we right. could. Prep is everything. We still only could offer them so many takes because once we sent the first uh, the first rafts up, they used all their CO2 up, and they said, we're done. So I think we had maybe 18 rafts or something like that, and oh. we used we used those 18 rafts, I think, 22 times. Not 22 times each, sure. but we got yeah, 22 yeah. rafts out of 18 because they ran out of, they ran out of CO2. Wow. And how long was the shoot? I don't know. 
<laughs> I mean, a long. Ass. How long was, were you in New Zealand? <laughs> I, we were in New Zealand for. I was there for about eleven months. Wow. Eleven months. Did you? Um, did you, you? Were you able to bring anybody, or was it just you? No, from the it States? was just uh, from my from my crew here. It was unfortunately just me. I would have loved to have brought uh, Jamie Christofferson, who's my assistant on, mm-hmm. uh, on right. the set, because not only did she hold all the the knowledge of the show and the continuity, but right. she's she's just super talented. Yeah. Uh, and prop, so how long did you prep here in the States before you went over? Well, we were prepping and doing capture at the same time. So it was probably about two years here wow. doing prep work and capture. Wow. And then uh, going over there for roughly a year. And we came back uh, for the Christmas holiday break um, at the end of 2019. And then, of course... <laughs> Uh, COVID yeah. exploded all over the world, and we were just about to get on a chartered plane to get it, with a one-week notice to fly back for six more months of work when, um, I think, Wednesday, we were kind of told about it, and by Friday, uh, when we were going to get on the plane, the, the country had closed its borders. Wow. So, um, the there was a subsequent um, live-action shoot that happened down there to clean up all the stuff that we hadn't gotten to. I stayed here for that um, for two reasons. One, they said it was going to be six months, and I thought there was a possibility that could go longer. And we weren't allowed to bring family, and we wouldn't be allowed to leave in that period of time. And I have two young kids. Yeah. Yes. And you brought them all with you the first time? We all went the first time, and it was an amazing adventure. New Zealand is incredible. And I Did they get to go to school out there? Yeah, they went everything? to school out there. And That's they... awesome. And one of your children was in the film right yeah my oldest uh liam they um they they we needed some navi kids oh cool (laughs) and instead of putting out um the casting call this is for a scene in way of the water which is why i think i can talk about it where some kids run up to um a a helicopter that lands on the beach basically it's not a helicopter but and uh so they wanted performances from real kids and instead of casting kids for this they were just like okay we have a crew of however many people here it's a big one uh so who has kids in this height range in this age range that are interested in doing this and um we, yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> everybody raised their hand. Yeah. my my oldest was very happy to be able to come and they they were a little navi kid I, I, and i remember them picking up a a marker cover one of the ways that we uh when you have to remove props that are markered from the volume you can take the markered one away and put one out there that doesn't have markers on it. Sure. Or we bought these little 30-cent rubber caps from McMaster Car, and mm-hmm. we would just run in there and just cover the markers. Yeah, so yeah. They weren't. So we could build one prop and use it in two ways as opposed to. And my kid found one of these on the ground, and they went over and, and actually handed it to Jim as he was giving direction. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, James Cameron, who is actually a lovely guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um most of the time <laughs> of course uh just took it and put it in his pocket and was like thank you very much i've been looking for that okay why don't we go back and do the scene now and so it was, it was just <laughs> these Adorable. great moments that are yeah, going to yeah. be something that you know will remind can you can you point them later. out in the actual scene at all oh god no <laughs> <laughs> well and also we did three and four passes with multiple blocking takes so they could be any number of the kids totally. in that scene right because that's how you can sort of build and layer those things. Yeah. <laughs> wow. There's a lot of elements that go into this movie that we haven't talked about any of the water stuff. 
Yeah. Because half this movie was shot under real water, right? Yeah, it was very impressive. The incredible minds that I'm hoping are going to win all the prizes for their innovations came up with, I believe, the first ever uh, air volume that is seamlessly connected to a water volume. So Hmm. there was capture above the surface of the tank. Right. And they built this tank on stage 18 at MBS. It's it's been torn down now because it was only engineered to be temporary. But uh, it I think our operating depth was somewhere around 16 feet, and they dug another sump that went down another 10 or 12 feet. So wow. we could actually do vertical um, of some 20 feet of swimming work. Uh, the effects technicians that put this together put wave makers in it. They could do oh, a, cool. You could put an island in the middle, and there was a current you could run around. How big was this? It was a big tank. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. It was a really big. I don't know what the total gallons were, but it, I'm glad it never like exploded. <laughs> <laughs> and we spent a lot of time in the water. You know, yeah. I'm a very hands-on prop master. I'm usually on set or I'm right. near to set. And when things are being sort of improvised a little bit, as happens on every project, sure. every TV show, every movie, every director is going to improvise a little bit. And when you have this type of filmmaking, it's actually conducive to that mm-hmm. uh so we'd be figuring stuff out sort of on the fly sometimes things yeah. that hadn't been considered or things that would just we were gonna wait until we were in the water so i always had my you know my my water gear my mask my snorkel my fins they were just ready to go at a little cubby up at the prop area in the right. in the tank how often and did you have to get in the water i was I, I, I was wet a lot you were wet a lot <laughs> yeah. yeah that's yeah. pretty cool and that's another thing that i, I like you were talking earlier about like, oh, you're putting a weight at the bottom of a bottle because you have to consider the movement of that. Now, when you put it all underwater, a prop underwater, that obviously changes the dynamic of how it's handled. Yeah, now we're working with buoyancy. Buoyancy. Yeah. So we need to know if it has to be neutrally buoyant, if it's got to float somewhere, and if it is neutrally buoyant, at what depth is it neutrally buoyant? Because the lower you get, the more pressure you have, squeezing all your little air bubbles down. So. Lots of rescue tape, lots of little bits of foam, lots of lead weights, lots of all of the stuff of that we could testing, just have right? ready to go, and a tremendous amount of testing and right. aerodynamics of the like because what they're dry they're like they're riding dragons and being shoot through a lot of this, which I saw they did a lot of that semi practically. Yeah. Um, instead of instead of you know being on uh, an elu or on a skim wing and going through the water uh, we had a buck that was down there and we would push current past them right. because it's all relative right it's it's still just water hitting you from a direction whether you're moving and hitting the water or where the water is moving hitting you but um, they were very very careful and insistent on getting the hydrodynamics of this all right we we actually went to both hawaii and the bahamas uh, and in the Bahamas, we did a bunch of, of sort of this hydrodynamic testing, like, um, can you hold on Yeah, <laughs> from going right. up to down? Uh, and there were pieces of equipment that were des- developed specifically to simulate what that <laughs> out of the water and diving into the water would be with tons of witness cameras on it so that we really knew, you know, Jim is very specific about his reality. And I think it serves the story incredibly sure. well. I think when you have a bunch of, this is me personally, but I think when you have a bunch of, you know, blue people running around in the woods um, and they're computer generated, if the physics falls apart, it might just pull everything else apart with it. Right. If the reality is fudged for fun, then great. But also you may pull, 
you know, that one little thread, you may unravel the whole sweater. So I think that it's very impressive and commendable that, um, you know, uh, John Landau and James Cameron wanted to pay so much attention to making it as real as possible. Sure. And like, like a give any given day, I mean, is it like uh, how we do regular uh, filmmaking where you do a certain amount of pages a day or... I mean, it seems like you don't get a you don't actually roll camera a lot in a day. <laughs> um, it really depended, you know. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know how many days we made. I don't know how many we pushed. I know that the schedule at the end of the production was longer than they had anticipated. Yeah, as it always is. Yeah, right? on yeah. A, something of that scale. Um, well, we we glossed over Obi Wan Kenobi. We should definitely jump in oh, there because yeah. I know we that's why Mikey's that. here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Obi, working on any Star Wars things. I think I've only I've had the opportunity, uh, like a couple times, a few times, to be able to just day play on it. And unfortunately, I was on full time projects at the time, so I wasn't able to do it. But just to be able to step foot on a set and hold a blaster or a lightsaber, and you got to actually build them. <laughs> oh, it was a, such a dream job. I don't know what I did to deserve Obi-Wan Kenobi, but it yeah. was my yeah. absolute, it was just amazing. And not only build them, but you kind of changed the way lightsabers were handled on set. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know how much we changed things. I mean, lightsabers you made them been, practical almost. Yeah. You know, I mean, they had, they had, it's all about interactive lighting. That's a, that's sure. a big part. And I think a newer part of what prop masters are running into is that um, like, if you look at return of the Jedi, and you look at that great fight between Luke and Vader toward the end um, when, you know, the Emperor is going to hit him with all the sparks and everything. If you, <laughs> if you freeze frame it, sometimes you'll see that there's a shadow that's being cast by mm-hmm. the lightsaber, which was a hilt with a stick coming right. out of it. And sometimes it's not because they had to, they didn't want to erase it, so they'd rather put the blade in. Um, you don't get when Vader is holding the lightsaber up in the uh, in the Death Star when he's going to battle Obi Wan. You don't see the red reflected on his shiny black mask. Mm. Um, when we were doing Kenobi, the director Deborah Chow and the director of photography Chung Hoon Chung really wanted to lean into using the lightsabers as a light, light source. source. That's practical. Right, right. Yeah, they also had to be durable enough to hit each other and stories from the um from the prequels uh about ewan mcgregor and hayden christensen having lightsaber battles is that they were kind of priding themselves on On how hard on (laughs) bending the steel that was i mean they were and there's this poor bastard who's probably just just (laughs) trying to bend them back in between takes um so we we took some of what um had been done before on in the in the few lightsabers that had existed uh for um the mandalorian uh and changed a little bit about how we were going to engineer ours um because we got a little information from them and decided to engineer them slightly differently i actually i don't want to take credit for being really smart i went to the (laughs) there's a lot of combat saber clubs out there right oh yeah right and i'm like well what are these people doing right because they can't afford to keep breaking their stuff and fixing yeah. it. So they've solved this problem. So we used polycarbonate tubes from the lightsaber people. And mm-hmm. we tried to make them. They, they still had a flex and a bend, which was not great, but it kept them from breaking. Um, we used DMX control boards and attached them to the blades and 
attached a battery and then stuffed it all into an empty hilt, basically. Right. So how similar are they to like the ones that you'll build at Disneyland, pretty much? The for ones, a couple hundred dollars. Uh, at <laughs> Disneyland for a couple hundred bucks are very cool. They uh I think it would be a lot of fun to make them. They're a little bit I think the Disney one uh Disneyland ones have a little bit more of a diameter. Yeah. To right. fit all the stuff in there. Yeah. They're they're a lot uh closer to like the force effects lightsabers that came out uh, however long ago. Right, with, right, right. With the uh, LEDs that would, you know, grow slowly and all the rest of it. I think they're a little closer in, in what they were to that. Yeah. But I do have to say, as the guy that was able to hand uh, Ewan McGregor dressed as Obi-Wan Kenobi, the first lightsaber yeah. that he'd ever had with one of these tubes. And then I call over on channel seven to the electrics and I'm like, Hey, Ben, walk can you fire up OB two, please? Wow. And he turns it on. Like Ewan McGregor was like a kid in a candy. He was running all, he wanted to go show it to the director and the deep. They'd already seen them. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was that wonderful He's got such a great energy. It was really a pleasure sure. to work with him. But he just had so much joy in this. That's and, fantastic. Uh, it was the same for Hayden. He'd never held a lightsaber that lit up. And as a as a huge fan of Star Wars, to get to give Darth Vader his lightsaber was really something. To, I bet. To be able to actually create the bridge piece. Because episode three, the Obi-Wan Kenobi lightsaber that he ends up with has a different look than the one Alec Guinness had in episode four. It's similar form factors, but there's definitely a difference there. And the question that one of the earliest things we had to tackle was, where, what are we going to do? Are we going to use the before one? Are we going to use the after one? Or are we going to build something in the middle? And um, Deborah Chow wanted to build something in the middle. So we used a lot of the form factor from the episode three. We changed a little bit about um, like the emitter and a few things uh, and copied episode four for that and then gave it a paint job that sort of split the difference between the two. So hmm. the, I'd say Avatar, there's like like it's mostly I mean, you're, you're building something new. You're working with James Cameron and stuff like that. Star Wars working in props, you have a. You <laughs> have a whole you have a whole fan base. Right. That exactly. if you do something wrong or historical the way the lightsaber isn't built a certain way and people catch it, like I feel like that's like one of the most called out type of jobs. Like I'm I'm assuming that you've looked into the history of lightsabers in the story and how each Jedi adapts their own lightsaber, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of that stuff's internal because I'm a big fan. Yes. <laughs> okay, right. fair. Yes. Um, and, I, and I think that served me um, when I was... There's a character called uh, Tala, who's sort of like a, a proto-rebel. She's, she's an Imperial who's helping sort of this underground railroad for the Jedi and the Force-sensitive to get them out of reach of the Inquisitors and the Empire. There's a moment in the script where... Um, young Leia sort of clocks her holster a little bit. And there's a, mm. there's a moment of recognition of her holster and a tiny conversation about the blaster. And so now, you know, I've got to put a blaster in this holster. We had to design the holster in such a way that it could fit the droid later. That's a whole other layer of complication. But yeah. for this blaster, I looked into Princess Leia had a blaster in A New Hope on the Tantive Four, the spaceship, and she shoots a stormtrooper with it. And mm -hmm. then she had a blaster again in Return of the Jedi on Endor. And both of those blasters were built on a really obscure, it's called a Margolin sporting pistol. Mm -hmm. I think it might have been Russian. I can't remember exactly who made it. But um, 
but I was like, you know what? If that's the if that's the blaster that Leia's going to end up with, let's put it in Tala's holster. Let's plant that seed yeah. for Leia here, right? So that she has this sort of moment when she's older and she's going to get to pick out her own blaster that she's going to say, I want that one. So let's put my piece to the story. <laughs> right. We shortened it up quite a bit. We kept the same muzzle break on it. And then because there's a moment where uh, Tala has to be doing some sort of sharpshooting um, to help save Ben from the first encounter with, with Darth Vader. Right. Uh, I needed, to, I felt like I needed to put a, an optic on it, a scope. And I'm like, what, what better scope than Han Solo's? So Ooh, that we can draw nice. that line. Yeah, just sure. It's these tiny little threads yes. that I wanted to string through this stuff because I'm a mega fan and I would appreciate seeing something like that. Of course. I don't know. There are probably some people that saw it. Most people probably didn't because it's not that oh, important. I'm sure a lot of people did. But it, <laughs> it, builds, it helps build to the, to, the, to the character and the story and it, it just it draws another line from, from our Leia um, you know, to, to Carrie Fisher's Leia. Those right. Easter eggs are one of my favorite parts about prop mastering, I think, is being able to do... And sure. no, no matter what you're working on, I feel like more than something not getting used, I feel like my heart breaks a little bit more when it, when you have like such an exciting, oh, I got this cool like Easter egg thing to put it in the director's like, ah, oh, nah. Yeah. <laughs> De- but the Debra- fans would love it! <laughs> Deborah Chow is a, is a brilliant director, and I think I had her trust. She, she told me that she's not the mega Star Wars fan. She's a Star Wars fan, but she doesn't go so deep dive as to know that that's the Margolin's boarding. Yeah. And, and so we got along really beautifully and I, and I really appreciate all of the, uh, the leeway that she gave me to, to kind of push some of these ideas forward and, and to say, Hey, what do you think? And they were still all sort of talked through with Doug Chang, who's, uh, in charge of pretty much all design from Lucasfilm and Pablo Hidalgo, who is sort of the keeper of the canon to make sure that I wasn't going to unknowingly step on something and, and make a mistake because Star Wars fans love their Star Wars. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm one of them. And, you know, you want to do something new, that is fantastic, but don't you change a thing. Yeah, yeah. Also, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So when you interviewed for the job, was it um, was that a factor, Is you being a Star Wars fan? It probably helped, you know? I didn't right. want to actually lean into that so hard and really? say like well here's my action figure collection <laughs> i you know which a lot of a lot of the newer stuff is impressive by the way really i'm is, sure is, wait it's a star wars action figures <laughs> so many so many <laughs> i kind of want to see <laughs> uh, it's not hoarding if there's a display case yeah <laughs> fair <laughs> if it's, sure if it's curated it. it's a collection that's i'm i'm gonna I'm gonna die on that hill. On yeah. when Mandalorian started, though, it was like a big thing with John Farbrow and and everything, is saying like they were only gonna hire like super fans, kind of going forward and everything to try to like do it, so they stick even closer to it. Well, and Josh is he knows this stuff as well as anybody. Totally, no question. <laughs> totally, and they, you know, Lucasfilm supports you too. Like, if you don't know the answer, here's the person to call. Right. Or yeah. Here's the person. They probably got a whole. They like... will. That's that's basically Pablo Hidalgo. That's one of the one of the things that he does is really helps support us with information. Like He's I, a Star Wars historian, uh, in a way, in a way. <laughs> right. um, more than that. But that's one of the things he can. He's do. like read all the books. I and wanted everything. to give Roken um, a bowcaster, mm. right? And right. I'd seen the moment in uh, was it The Force Awakens when uh, Han Solo was, grabs Chewbacca's bowcaster and shoots a guy with it and right. looks at it and he's like oh I like this or I gotta get one of these or whatever it was 
so I knew that there was some precedent for a human having a bowcaster, but it really hadn't been done other than that moment. But here we have this big, tough dude. Right. There's a bunch of stormtroopers coming at him. Um, I remember from playing Star Wars Battlefront. I don't know if you've ever played that game. Yes. But you could. <laughs> one of the things you could play a bowcaster. Yeah. And one of its, I never really did because they didn't seem very like practical. <laughs> but it did have this thing where you could shoot three shots at once. And so I designed this bowcaster with three barrels right? to give them the opportunity, if they wanted, for this guy to shoot three stormtroopers with one blast, you know. Uh, and I don't think that moment made the final cut, but it was it was something that we shot and the stunt people did it. And it's it's but it was one of those things where I'm going to give a bowcaster to this guy. I probably should ask about that. Right. You know, that's cool. though. And he, they gave your blessing. Yeah, <laughs> I got the OK to give a bowcaster yeah. to Roken. And uh when O'Shea saw that thing, he he was just the, so many of the actors come to Star Wars as fans. Of course, right. so at like, this point, for sure. You know, uh, we got to give Jimmy Smits his first blaster, and he nice. was just like, I mean, it never came out of his holster, but he was still really sure. psyched. When O'Shea got his bowcaster, he was just like, "Shut up!" He was so excited <laughs> about this. <thing. laughs> And then you know you've done it well if like the actor's super excited to grab it. If if it's right. on the prop table and you see people walking by and they take their hands and they just feel like they need to touch it even right. though they know they're not supposed to. There was a, a great PA, I think he was a health and safety PA who God bless all those people. Um right. they just kept us safe through the pandemic and they had uh just they got no glory and everybody was annoyed by them because yeah. they kept telling us to put our masks up or they kept sticking yeah. things up our noses right that didn't feel good <laughs> and there was this he was on set doing something i think he had a box to like hold an actor's mask or something that was right. his job his whole job finally somebody on set with a dumber job than me right <laughs> but he i just he kept staring at lightsabers and i pulled the lightsaber off and I just, I was like, oh, I got to tie my shoe. Can you hold this for a second? Nice. <laughs> nice. And I just went and untied my shoe and tied it back. He was so excited and oh, so but, appreciative. And uh, it probably, you know, made his day. The, the, the touching of things. Yes. I, you know, there are paint finishes. If you've just had some pizza, go away. But, right. you know, if somebody wants to come <laughs> over and touch your stuff when they know they're not supposed to, you know you've built something cool. Exactly. And that, that's like the beauty of it all, right? I mean all the stuff that we get to actually build and then you know talking about the the opportunity to offer a director or an actor something and sometimes they just say no that's not what i'm after but when they say yes you know when you and they and you implement that into the film you actually feel like you've contributed more than you know you you're you're hired to do you know and and that's the kind of thing that i want to try to impress upon people who are just starting or people who are interested in props, you are an actual part of the creative process, you know, and, you know, and to, to offer that because people appreciate it. Sometimes they don't appreciate it, yeah. but at least they know you care. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you're, if you're actually involved in it to the point of where you want to offer something to the story. And that's what I love about working on set. You know, like you say, you're on set all the time. I do mostly TV now. So for me, I'm always prepping, okay? And, yeah. I, and I get to have those moments with directors in prep, and we talk about things. But when you're on set, and you get to be involved, you know, like, again, with Spielberg saying, you know, I need this by the end of lunch. I need these four things. You know, your sphincter slams shut. <laughs> <laughs> okay? But that's what keeps you alive. And this is, like, really what is 
the the joy for me of being a property master is like in those moments where you get to actually do something and you have to like perform and you get something and and pull it out of your ass you know and make it happen in a short amount of time that's why you know we always say you know when somebody asks you for director asks you for something your first your first response is how much time do i have how much time yeah, do I yeah. Have? okay not no i don't think i could get that done or whatever it's just like you know how much time do i have the clock is running yeah. you know and uh you know and then again you you have to like be composed. Yeah, no problem. I got that. And you walk slowly to the door. And when the door closes behind you, you lose your mind and you run to your trailer and you go crazy and, and you put it all together and then you get it all. And then you compose yourself again and you go to the door and you walk in and you present it like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I do this every day. You know, so it, to me, that is like really what the joy of, of doing props is or one of the great joys. Speaking to that kind of collaborative thing you were talking about one of the greatest i think compliments from any director in my entire careers it was it was on uh way of the water and i don't know what it was it was toward the end of the day and we'd just been doing some really cool capture and i i said to jim as as we were both just walking out of the stage i'm like we gotta you gotta finish up and hurry this i want to we gotta hurry and finish this movie because i really want to see your movie like i want to watch your movie and he was just like, you know what? It's it's our movie. And wow. that, you know, was just a, a yeah. really great, first of all, that he's acknowledging sure. that they're, I mean, obviously, he is the driving creative yeah. force. And if any, Oh, really? Can I get a piece of that $2 billion it just made? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if there was a pixel out of place that bothered him, I'm sure he fixed it. But oh, yeah. At the same right. time, to, to say this is our movie, to me, is is somebody who is... I mean, certainly one of, if not the greatest storyteller of right. all time, um, as far as just the ability to connect to audiences around the world with his stories, um, to have him, you know, say this is our movie, right? Uh, was just that was a, that was a good warm fuzzy. Yeah, well, and, and that makes sense because he understands that it's a collaborative effort. I mean, if anything that any industry, I mean. It is a, a, all of the parts working together. And for him to understand that and to acknowledge that and to appreciate that, it, it only makes everybody work better when you feel like you are actually part of a team. You're not just a cog in the machine. Yeah. You know, so uh, th- to me, that is like really the beauty of it all. And those are the best, that's what I say, those are the best sets ever to work at. Yes. I mean, everybody works miserable jobs every once in a while, but <laughs> but like having something where the where it feels like that, like the director right. and the all the department heads for that matter are just start to feel like a family. Those are my favorite sets to be on where you don't feel like you have like you're you can't have an opinion or you can't be in a box. And That's stuff. one of the nice things about television too. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <laughs> is that it's longer term and you really get to know people and it's not Here's your movie. Um, the key grip's name is whatever, and I hope I remember that in a month because in yeah, three I, months we're going to be moving on to the next thing. You yes. know, um, I've been I love the longer term stuff. Kenobi yeah, sure. was six episodes, and it really played out over just over a year. And, right, you know, Rebel Moon, two movies um, for Zack Snyder and Netflix, fifteen months of work on that. Wow, um, from go, and you really get to that sort of wonderful TV place where everybody kind of has that family. Episodics, that's like one of my favorite parts about episodics though is because now that we have that is a thing, it's 
just longer movies. Like I feel like, I don't know, 30 years ago it was like all about the sitcoms and stuff like right. that, which was just multicam and all that stuff. But now we actually have just these extended movies that will go sometimes four or five, eight to eight seasons. Right. No. And it's amazing too. Like when I did a, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I did seven seasons of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and, you know, three of the cast members had babies, and, you know, and the crew comes and goes, but, you know, and you get to know people on a, on a level that's amazing. Um, and then, you know, we all experience this, too, where you, you work so close together for so many hours a day, and all focus on the same thing, and you have this camaraderie, and then it's over. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then, like, when I saw... When we were wrapping Brooklyn Nine Nine, and you know the stage at CBS Radford where our precinct was, you know we sat there for eight seasons. I mean, I did seven because I did the Tarantino movie in between. But when we, they were tearing that down, I mean, it was like physically, yeah, <laughs> no, it's gonna be hard. You're home, yeah, you know. It's like, oh my god, all the furniture's gone, you know. And then two days later, all the walls were down, and yeah. it was an empty stage, and it's like. It's just this weird feeling, and I just had that same feeling of finishing up winning time, you know, where we built the whole uh, Forum Stadium um, on stage, you know, with the, the bleachers and the whole nine yards, and we had five different floors for every, you know, like we had the Celtics floor and all these different floors um, uh, that were built for the, all the different games that we did, but... I mean, they tear that thing down so fast, and it's yeah. like, and it's just like stages are expensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, what do you pay for a sound stage? That was was it Warner Brothers? It was Warner. We had seven stages at Warner Brothers. I mean, Those? seven. What is stages? God, I can't imagine that a stage at Warner Brothers you're going to get that any cheaper than seventy to ninety thousand a month. Yeah, it's it's a ridiculous amount of money. Just tear down the walls, man. Get it out of here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And where the, where do you put it? You know, where do you put yeah. seven hundred bleachers? You know, it's in the warehouse at the end the of Indiana warehouse. Jones. Yes, it, yeah, it's it, where it all goes. I used to work in the Universal, like their their assets right, the warehouse, warehouse for a little bit, helping organize a little bit. And it's massive. And there's just like a giant T-Rex in the center of it. Right. There's like all the cars from the Fur- Fast and Furious it's movies, crazy. like in the parking lot. It's so insane. And oh. it's just like, well, this stuff might never be touched again. Yep. Um, yes. Well, hopefully we'll be touched for, for our next convention. <laughs> right. <laughs> we can convince exactly. him to let yeah. us pull the, it out. This town is full of places. I like know. That. What, what was the name of that, uh, warehouse that's on uh, Vineland you come down off of Sherman Oaks Sherman Way heading south and then there is a, a warehouse over there that Disney had all their stuff there yes I've been in there a few times it's to crazy try to find some you see old all the stuff Pirates of the Caribbean stuff in there all the ships and every and it's it's probably just all still sitting there it is it's nobody crazy. touches it <laughs> you know and then again like when we did alias and I mean I don't know if you guys watch alias but we had mm-hmm. all that Rambaldi stuff this 15th century prophet that had all these crazy gadgets that we got to build. Yeah. At the end of that show, they just like went to the Disney warehouse, to the prop house, and then it just all disappeared. It was like, wow, where did all that stuff go? Yeah. Prop store. That's prop it. store. <laughs> I never saw any of that stuff on the prop store. I looked for it, but yeah. But uh, I think. You know, I, but you know, we build objects not for the object, we build the object so that we can 
photograph the object. Right. And then the object itself is really not important anymore unless there's a sequel coming. Sure. And we put a lot of blood, Tell sweat, and tears the into that. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and we put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into this stuff. But the end, the end gain of this is not to have a museum piece somewhere, although that would be really nice if, if some of that stuff would make it so right. that thousands of people could enjoy it. Um, and, and, but ultimately we're building so that somebody could take a picture of it. Yep. Sure. And then the thing doesn't really have the value anymore. I, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that because I think it does have a value because it, it elicits emotion, an emotion from somebody. Yeah. And so somebody, when they see it, like if you go to the uh, motion picture museum and you see sure. Rosebud, you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I, I actually wish there were more things like that there. I also think that it's really uncanny that that particular museum, the Academy, <laughs> yes, which does not have a space to acknowledge the creative contributions of prop masters, and that's maybe a conversation for another well, time, but the Academy Museum, yes, the things on display that connect you to the films are the props. Correct. Yeah. And I don't know, uh, we went pretty early after it opened, and when we first walk in, there's the whole, they had the whole wall there and all these little placards on it that said all the different jobs all the different crafts right. of it, and there was nothing for property master yeah and i remember thinking you've got to be kidding me you know and this is part of why we started the pmg there's lots of reasons why but one of them is that reason is that we're not acknowledged enough for what we contribute to the craft um which is why we're having this podcast now with the oscars coming that you know you had a very significant role in the look of Avatar, in, in know, the help of the design, right? I, I was on the team. Uh, yeah, you know, you I don't, I'm, I'm not gonna. I don't want to take any anything away from you're not from from Ben or from Dylan, the the two production designers, uh, sure. or the art directors, or even um, our our set decorator. Set decorator you know, gets a trophy right? too. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, but, yes, but also, you know, we are designers. We are problem right. solvers. Yeah, we absolutely. Interface directly with the director. Right, we're not. We're so our own department. We we really are. We work alongside of and with, obviously, correct the art department, and the production designer still has a lot of say. But in my recent experience, certainly, and even in my you know older experience, it's you're working with the director and the production designer. Once they have confidence in you, um, isn't likely to be at your meetings, right? You know, it's true. You know, I, I'm happy to go in and say like, hey. Uh, you know, I, I need to do something for this set. Do you have a color palette for, yeah, sure. you know, what are your electronic displays? Because we have to establish that. Um, and sometimes we're out ahead of that. And mm -hmm. they will take stuff that we've done and incorporate that into their set right. design. Absolutely. And, and, and the also the relationship with the actors. That's something that oh, yeah. if the property master wasn't there, you know, again, it's a very personal Props are very personal to the character. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if the production designer is doing that or who's doing it if the property master's not doing it. So, again, as far as a contribution to a film, I think the props are, are key, especially with character development. Not, you know, not every movie. No, of course. A lot uh, of them, like... This, this stoner needs to know how to hit this bong correctly. That's right. <laughs> I mean, That's right. Who like... came up with the honey bear, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, what a brilliant prop. Right. right. <laughs> 
But you know, the the more you get into the manufacturing, the more you are contributing. I think, and even when you're into renting, you're bringing the right piece. Even yes. just choosing the right watch or exactly. the right glasses. Well, I mean, how personal are glasses? I one of my really? mantras and something that anybody that's been on a crew of mine anytime recently will know is that the closer something gets to an actor's face. Right. I pay more and more attention to it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm not going to care yes. so much about the little riblet on the end of the shoelace, but right. I will absolutely obsess over that pair of glasses. Definitely. That's, that's so true. And I, I tell my crew that all the time, like on set, um, you know, because often, like if we're doing a giant set and there's all kinds of stuff happening in the background and everything, and everybody's running in 50 different directions, and sometimes they're forgetting about what's happening inside that little box. And I'll, and I'll say, listen, focus on what's inside that little box first. What you're seeing there matters most. That's okay. the shot. Yeah, that's the shot. So if you're like cutting straws for somebody in the background who's doing something and then I, you know, the saran wrap is still on all the platters and we're rolling camera, there's a problem. If I see a barcode on the bottom of yes. another yeah. <laughs> freaking coffee cup. Yeah. Exactly. I'm going to lose my shit. That's yeah. right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, everybody has their pet peeves. Mine is fake ice. and Fake ice, I've been noticing more and more how fake it looks and yeah. everything. And I <sighs> and I know it's hard. I know it's I know. hard to, to keep real ice going on a set. but And I don't have to have everybody in the background with real ice. But if my heroes... Don't have real ice. That's a it. Bumps problem. me when I'm watching it. Uh, I, I, it's yeah. starting to b- bum yeah. me out more and more. <laughs> Here's the key for anybody listening: ice floats. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> or if you're going to even put it in the background, fine. Just don't fill the water yeah, up just past the, water the level goes up of right the, to the ice level. And it's silicone ice looks really, really good, and it floats. But it flakes, and that's like the biggest issue with that for me. I don't know if you've seen it. It's great yes. if you're dipping in it. <laughs> right, right. And I, I guess I would just feel bad like handing a glass to an actor that doesn't have real ice in it. You know yeah. what I mean? It's... Uh, you know, unless you can't get another glass, unless the, you know, there's probably a reason somewhere. But <laughs> there are very few pieces of glassware that were that they only made one of. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And ice is a pretty achievable technology almost anywhere. Now, if you're on location in Santa Clarita in the middle of the mountains in the middle of August, then, okay, we can start talking. Yeah, it's a cooler with some dry ice. It can be done. It's harder. I'm just saying. Why do you have three extra people today? Well, the ice. (laughs) (laughs) I think we can do it on an eight and skate, but I'm going to need them here. Yeah, it's not Sorry, much. I, I lean in for those moments. Is that okay? Exactly. It's perfect. It's just a little it lost. Is. It is. I like the emphasis on it. I mean, it's not much different from doing an ice cream scene, which a lot of us have done. And I mean, sure, it's difficult, but you'll it, get it done. One hundred percent. You just have to lean into it. You just have to know it's going to be a shitty day. You know that you have to be slinging melting props. You know, but I know I'm just starting to twitch now, thinking of all the ice cream that we've done. Yeah. <laughs> or you know what you find the really really good food stylists and they're out there there you go yeah who can come up with an ice cream that doesn't melt and that you can still eat and it's going to be like right. it's it's achievable it's the real thing is always better definitely yes well i appreciate uh food stylists now more than ever because yeah. early in my career they didn't exist and right. we used to have to do it all yeah. i mean and i did 10 years of non-union before i did union and in a different market so um, I did a movie in um, Vermont, um, Care of the Spitfire Grill, it was called. Um, and we literally had to 
create a, a grill in the garage of the place where we shot. And we were doing short order. Yeah. Cook, you know, like hamburgers. How many do you need <laughs> oh, for no, this? Yeah. Whipping stuff out and bringing it into the set. And yeah, I don't miss that at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, it's... I, the first time I saw that beautiful rounded, you know, cherry pie and was like, oh, can I take that home? They're like, well, yeah, but it's mostly mashed potatoes. <laughs> because, because, you know, you've 100%. got the mashed potatoes, they hold the shape. You just put a little pie on top of them, you right. bake that. It doesn't take that long and it doesn't collapse. And yes. I'm like, oh, of course it's mashed potatoes. Yeah, we're 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 going to do a podcast with some uh, food stylists for sure. Oh, it's a great. It's they a, are they are fascinating. Yeah, critically important. We, yeah, um, we we worked with some really talented food stylists to solve the problem on Kenobi of um, of the the whaling meat. He's at <laughs> yeah. a he's at a, a, a meat cutting yeah. station, and we've got a whole assembly line. And to do that, oh my goodness, the money that that was going to take. So we did as many cheats as we could, and for the hero piece that he cuts, because it has these little fat veins in it, you never know how he's going to cut it, right. but you can't just paint them on the outside, because when you cut that, that thing should be yes. inside, too. Yes. Yeah. Um, we made molds. We held them yep. at crazy angles and layered gelatin inside of them and stacked that, and we had all these bricks, and then we've got... I don't know how many we talk about how many we're going to be able to provide. They're like, yeah, that should be fine. We'll just use them in the close-ups, and then they use them in all the wides and everything else. They always do. <laughs> so now we've got hot water and paint brushes and cold, and we're trying yeah. to glue them all back together and <laughs> put them in the and you know like without really talented uh, food stylists, that doesn't that doesn't happen. Right. Absolutely. Because you know, prop masters, we have to know a little about everything, but it's very difficult to become an expert on everything right. and knowing, you know, how to set that gelatin just right. right. And it should probably be flavored because somebody's going to try to eat it anyway. So we should, you know, make sure that that works. And all of those things are where we as prop masters ride on the shoulders of giants, yes. whether it's our crew on set, yeah. whether it's um, the folks in our shops, whether it's the food stylists that we're working with, whether it's, how many person. unsung heroes right. at, in the prop shops, the fabricators yes. that we, um, that sometimes we never meet, that right. never get the T-shirt, that yeah. never get the the credit, that yes. never get the thing, at, you know that that are that are so critical to what we do. And yes, for the department head, but we are just a tiny piece. And if you don't have all those other pieces working as well as you can, um, it all falls apart. Yeah, that that was one of the things that took me. A while to learn, you know, because I remember when I first became property master, I had a headache every single day for like the whole run of the show because I was taking on everything. You know, you think you have to do it all. And then you realize that it isn't about that. It's about finding people that you could trust and finding people that have expertise where you don't have it. And you're just like the ringleader, you know, the ringmaster. And you're just making sure that all the balls are staying in the air. You know, but it is such a collaboration of so many great people. And again, you know, we talk about uh, ISS and SAT and uh, yeah. Casey. You know, I, I've come in, rolled in with like some drawings of some stuff. There. She's <laughs> like, she looks at it and she's like, you wanted to do what? <laughs> <laughs> she goes, I don't see it here on the page. I'm like, I oh, yeah, know, but you know, then you like have to talk your way through it. And they oh, have no, to that part I got to act out. Hang on. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and you have to, they have to decipher it all, you know, and then you give it to them. And then you're like, you know, calling them every three days. How are you? It's yeah, coming yeah. along. It's coming along. And then you get it. And it's like fantastic. And right. it's like, thank God, you know, so it's, uh. It, it, there it it's amazing how many 
uh, talent, how much talent is out there at our disposal. At yeah. any also, time. I'm really happy that um, I'm only about three YouTube videos away from learning how to do just about anything. Which right. is another incredible resource. Dude. That's true. The fact that that, that virtual encyclopedia, uh, I think yeah. it was, I was talking to Greg Finnan, um, another really talented prop master, who said that at one point, I think it was Greg Bilson Jr. at ISS, mm-hmm. was talking about, you know, like, okay, so imagine your, your average, very talented grip. They probably understand how to use 300 to 400 pieces of equipment, and they know it. Top to bottom, totally. they know how to keep it safe. They know right. how to service it. They know how to fix it if it breaks. This is not at all me dismissing our our friends sure. in the grip department. But um, he then like basically plopped a phone book on the desk and said, "This is what we have to know." Right. And um, I, you know, sometimes we get it wrong, <laughs> but hopefully our batting averages are really good. And you've got to do your homework. You've got to do the research. Absolutely. I, I uh, that reminds me. I was doing a, a, a oh, I hear sorry, I know. I love it. We're in the city. Um, <laughs> we're, we're I was uh, we were doing we were at a cemetery and it was a like a twenty one gun salute thing and I had right. and it was a TV show and we were like running behind or whatever and I got all these weapons and had them loaded them into my truck and drove out to the set and I got there and I realized I've never used this gun before and I have the the ammo for it and everything and. Um, I, I don't even know how to load it. And then and there was me in the back of my truck with my phone out looking at a YouTube video yeah. on how to load this particular weapon. And it actually worked. And yeah. I, what was it, do you know? I don't remember no. what it was off the top of my head, but I remember thinking that I didn't, I didn't have time to think about that until I got there to think, oh, yeah, it should be self-explanatory, right? It's Yeah. yeah. That down to... Um, well, on horror stories, because every episode was its own thing, so we would jump between time periods. We'd do one that was in the 80s, and then we did one that was 1750s. And I was like, okay, there's a period I know nothing about whatsoever. Mm. And YouTube was my savior for that, because there's like communities of people in Ohio and Indiana that literally just live on communes and are complete purists and reproduce a lot of this stuff by hand and a lot of stuff. And they have endless videos explaining how to use absolutely everything and why they used it and what like Betty lamps and what type of oil that they used right. and, and stuff like that. And that solely, not only from me being able to buy stuff from their company, but their YouTube videos just saved me and was able to get through that when I needed everything with a two week turnaround right. and to be accurate. And we changed like 90% of the script because the script was wrong. Um, sure. and, and a lot of aspects, which we made it right. Wow. Yeah, it's fascinating. Another example of how you're bringing, you know, something to the table as far as the storytelling goes. Totally. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Know. And I got excited about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no Emmy for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not happening. No, sorry. Not yet. Only a matter of time, gentlemen. Yeah. So, well, is there anything else um, that we I, wanted to talk about? I, I think I just wanted I, I've only worked with you Brad for maybe a week on um, Rebel Moon yeah and stuff like that you came out to the to the chaos and the heat but it was fantastic <laughs> it was a incredible experience I'm so so fortunate that I got that phone call and that somehow I bluffed my way through the interview <laughs> and it was and you know Zack Snyder um, has just such a tremendous energy and 
visually, I think as a storyteller, he is just as good as anybody. Yeah. Um, and the culture that um, Deborah Snyder and Wes Collar uh, bring to the table at the, um, at the Stone Quarry, which is the production company, mm-hmm. is is really. I really appreciate them both as well at just being um, able to work with you and understand that there are budget limitations yeah. and there's time limitations. And Zach is, it was just, it was a really wonderful experience. And I really, really hope that uh, we get to do some more. Yeah. And it was really cool being able to step on that type of set and everything. And um, I just wanted to let you know that you, like just seeing you work, uh, made me want to do better as a prop master. And oh, and it just inspired me just because I was only there for one week and I saw you helping out with propping up background. I saw you jumping into set when just little things would, would break, just even with like a thing of glue. Uh, there was like a, something that happened on set where um, a rig with a magnet wasn't sticking and you got excited about a stronger magnet <laughs> and bringing out the magnet. And I just saw your passion. I saw you also just like, oh, there's there's an idea for a design that I have. I just want to show a director real quick. I'm just going to whip something up real quick just so I can get the idea across. Like saw doing all that, just all those pieces in like less than a week, I saw this. And it, like, I think as soon as I left that, like I signed up for SketchUp classes. I was right. like, I need to learn how to like do more of that stuff. Like I need to like, I need to be more involved and in it because it made me excited. That's high praise. It made me excited. And that's fantastic. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you're a younger guy coming up in the business and you work with somebody like Brad and he inspired you. And what inspires you is his passion. Yeah. Okay. And this is the thing that I want to say to all young prop masters. It's like, you know, take your seat at the table. Okay. You're not just there to sling, you know, to hand them things, you know, and to, take through, you know, what's on the page or whatever. You are a collaborator. Think of yourself as a collaborator and they will appreciate that. If they see that you care, you know, to me, it's like, uh, and again, I want to say you have to care more about the props than anybody else on the set. Okay. Even the creator of the show. Okay. He may care about them as well, but if you have the attitude that you care more about the props than anybody here, then it's going to translate and people are going to appreciate that. And I've had, you know, where I, I will come in and like just on this last show, we were doing insert on a piece of paper. And at the top of the paper, there was a crease where the where the uh, paper clip was attached to the paper before we shot. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the monitor and I'm seeing it and it's driving me <laughs> freaking nuts. And I'm like, oh, my God. I, I said to one of my assistants, go make another copy of this thing. So they go and they make another copy and I come back and I said, Sally, I'm sorry, but I got to change it. And she goes, what are you talking about? We just lined this whole thing up. I'm saying, but there's see that thing there. <laughs> She's like, oh my God. Okay, fine. For Chris, we'll do it. And so we switched it out, you know, but it's like, but you know, she appreciated that. I appreciate it. And you're, you know, and you have to do that. Yeah. You know, cause that's what separates you from, you know, just some hack. Well, and not, nobody that's getting into this industry right now is doing it because, you know, it's going to be good, like family time or, yeah. <laughs> no, I think anybody that's entering this at some point has been moved by something they've seen on screen. Right. And that this is what they want to do. And to your point, if you have a seat at the table and you see something, say something. Yes. If you have an idea bring it forward. If it's a really good idea and they say no to it the first time, maybe bring it forward again later. (laughs) But, and if they say no the second time, then you know what? It's their show. 
Right. Yeah. And, right. And when when it's your show, then you can insist. But it, don't be afraid to bring those ideas forward, even if you get a no, because I think a director has to make what fifteen hundred to two thousand decisions yes. a day. Right. So they're obviously their brain is going to be occupied, and most of right. them are just people. Yes. And and to that point, it's about finding your moment. Too okay because if you walk up to a director when they're in the middle of no like, yeah, timing is everything timing is everything and you know and you have to be able to learn to read that room you know and I, I, I've been known to be like a stalker you know where <laughs> you know you're just hiding waiting, behind a tree <laughs> you're just waiting for the director to like you know walk to crafty or or to like step out of his office or something like that and you can catch him on the fly uh, or her and. Uh, you know, and that that makes all the difference in the world because if you know you stick your head in the middle of something, you know, at the wrong time, you're not going to get a good response. I, I actually have a little folding table that I keep, nice, and a little black sheet that goes on the folding table, nice, and you can put it anywhere, yes, and then you put your director bait on that, uh. <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> whatever, director bait, whatever, yeah. whatever yeah. you want to catch. Yes, <laughs> you, presentation you, is everything. You put the director bait on that thing, and then just wait, and they'll they're gonna look at it, and that's when you engage. You know, yes. like. Unless they just walk Seriously, by. Seriously, it is a but, skill. 100%. Yeah. You're yeah. like the like guy going up with a trench coat. What do you buy? Yeah, right. Sometimes. Yeah. Want to buy a watch? No. Uh, you know, why is all this crap on my windscreen, my windshield? I want to go home. <laughs> right, right. That's hilarious. Sorry, well, I needed some approvals. <laughs> I'll scrape it off. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. exactly. That's hilarious. I love it. Wow. Um, so do you have, what's next for you? Brad, do you have anything? No, I got nothing. I have been super fortunate, Knockwood, to be very busy for almost like six years without a break right. of any real kind. So I am now four weeks to the day from the last day I worked. Wow. And I have gotten stuff done around the house. Right. I'm starting to like, I, we just moved in the middle of uh, Rebel Moon, so there was no time to even unpack. Yeah. I've got my workbench coming back together. Well, you aren't, um, weren't you the person that told me, well, prep is your break? <laughs> prep is my break. <laughs> like, it's 10-hour days. This is easy. <laughs> That's right. How many times a hiatus is from driving from one office to your new yeah, one? Yeah, it's right? all good. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's, there's always another job, so I'm really going to try to embrace this time and just, you know, be present for my family and my kids. Nice. Yeah, um, try important. to enjoy my house. Obviously, unemployment is not as good for my bank account as yes. um, employment. And yes. Uh, and that's, you know, something I know we're going to run into. Um, I was recently told that, uh, you know, all the trucks are in at ISS and yeah, there's some going to Lancaster. So there's not bleak. a lot on the horizon. Um, you know, the writer's strike is looming. Yep. And I doubt anything's getting greenlit unless it's 100% right, right, written right now. Right, so yeah. there's probably going to be some pilots going, but pilot season isn't a thing anymore. Yeah, no, no it's gone. Streaming gone. channels are pulling back. Yep. Um, so, you know, there's there's stuff that you hear about and I just figure every once in a while I'll make some calls around to the usual suspects but um, for the most part I'm just going to enjoy time off until I get uh, really freaked out about money <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly I'll call Jim Henson again yeah start selling action figures yeah right exactly at least you have that to fall back on right? <laughs> prop store all right I think that's good. Yeah. yeah. I really appreciate you coming out. No, thank fantastic. you guys so much. This has been fun just to even talk about stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, you and I are going to have a conversation about the PMG and and 
I have some ideas. Yeah, that's good because I, we need ideas yeah. and we need yeah. bodies. Yeah. I was yeah. pumped to see your name pop up on the on the list. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, um, I mean, this can be either on or off, but I think um, one of the things I would actually push for really, mm-hmm. really early out of the gate is um, we need an award show. Yes. I, I don't care if we're standing around in a parking lot yep. and handing out half empty cans of Miller Lite. <laughs> I'll take it. As the award. Dude, but it's in the works. But if we don't recognize ourselves, yep. nobody else is going to do it for exactly. us. Exactly. You know, I, I, I appreciated the, the social media blast about the, you know, congratulations mm-hmm. to these prop masters yeah, who are attached right. to these yeah. things. And I was just like, wow, we right. should just do our own. We yeah. Are. And I think 2023 is not early enough to right. have some kind of ADG, some kind of, right. you know, VES. The, there are, you know, Screen Actors Guild. Yes. All the guilds do it. Yep. SDSA. And I think, the, I think the most important thing that the PMG can do is to start, like, if, if the first time somebody has on their resume or on their IMDb or on whatever it is, you know, 2023, you know, I won a prize at the PMG for whatever right. project I was working on. Sure. Um, then that goes in front of a producer and it's all of a sudden, oh, they win awards. What are they winning awards for? Oh, it's design and fabrication or it's period. Or right. we could probably just yeah. just copy yep. whatever the ADG does, even as their award sure. category, short format, long for whatever it is. Definitely. It doesn't have to get bloated. It can just be, you know, 10 things. But the right. more we can give those titles mm-hmm. to the people in the guild and maybe even the people outside of the guild, right? which may bring more people into the guild. Exactly. Then I think the, the better off we are when we want to say, hey, maybe the prop master should make more money than third utility sound. Right, right. Well, Not just, to diminish their abilities. Yeah, yeah, but absolutely. Definitely. Just so you know it that it was one of the uh, starting, founding moments in this guild was that award show there are some people that are on the board who that's their main criteria is to make that happen Good. and it is in the works and we have an awards committee so i would love to have you yeah i know uh, like i was talking to Teresa, she's of, of a similar mind yeah so definitely whatever yeah. we can do to help move it forward is yep. great and yes. honestly it could just be a shit certificate it doesn't yeah. It doesn't need to be like we right. don't need to spend a bunch of money on it. Right. Yeah. We could do it in a parking lot. Yeah. Well, or we could do it bigger. You know, because sure. here's the thing that I always say about it is all these award shows that are out there, you know, they're all well and fine, but come on, props, man. That's the fun department. You yeah. Know? We build all the gadgets and everything. We could have a lot of fun with yeah. an award show. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think it'll be great. Especially if we can, you know, start begging clips of things like yes. they show at the oscars they'll show a bit of a maybe we can show a close-up of a thing maybe well of we course can show we can an actual photograph of the thing right because again it's just publicity for the studios okay yeah. and if there's an award show for their film they're going to want to be part of it so yeah here's hoping yeah i, I can't see why not it's all good publicity also, for everybody i, 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 I want one <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, 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 we should start thinking about. That's one of the things we have to think about is the design of the trophy. How much fun is that? Oh yeah, sure. who gets to do it? Right. I I think it should be the Golden Spatula Award. Yeah. <laughs> because for the longest time, I was telling people like I basically I just get spatulas. Like the, you know, nobody cares about the spatula and what it looks like. They just want to. It has to be there. Right. right. The 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 worst prop in the world is the one that's just not there. Yeah. Yes. And, exactly. You know, they're all basically a spatula. 
<laughs> Everything is a spatula. <laughs> well, we will have a lot of opportunity to come up with designs Nobody's for them. Nobody's going to vote for the golden spatula. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants the golden spatula. Nobody wants. I kind of. <laughs> Maybe if it's just an actual spatula and it's a good one you could use with nonstick pans. Use it. Exactly. That it's would, practical yeah, props. Uh, exactly. Yes. Right. Right? Maybe just keep the cost down. We could probably hit it at the dollar store. <laughs> definitely could hit it at the <laughs> dollar store. With a spray paint? <laughs> yeah. Why would you spray but paint it? But a bit. <laughs> you got all that crap on your eggs. What do you. <laughs> now oh, I don't want right. it anymore. You got to clean the damn spatula off. Good God. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, uh, again, check us out at propertymasterguild.org as well. And uh, we'll be back with another one very soon. Yeah, hopefully this week. Great. And thanks again, Brad and Mike. Thank you, and thanks to all our listeners out there tuning into another episode of Prop Talk, the official podcast of the Property Masters Guild, brought to you by Real Working Prop Masters. If this is your first time listening, please make sure to like, subscribe, and comment to wherever you're hearing this. Um, if you want to know more information on the Property Masters Guild or have any questions for us here at Prop Talk, be sure to go to propertymastersguild.org. We're also on Instagram at underscore the pmg and we're on all other social media platforms just look for property masters guild and give us a follow on all of those so until next episode of course thank you thank you yeah Bye. bye